Um, we are actually uh, beginning a series um, today called Prayers of David. And so um, what I'm, we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at various um, psalms and various things written by David. Now, when we think about psalms, we have a tendency to think about them as sort of another category. Um, but if you'll notice, the psalm that we're going to be reading today, which I'll jump into in a minute, is really directed to God, right? It's David writing uh, to God. Now, it would have been put to music, but it's no less of a prayer. And one of the things that I think we see in the prayers of David is they really run the entire gamut of human emotions, right? And there, there's anger, there's feelings of abandonment, <clears throat> there's sadness, there's joy, there's a desire for justice, right? And so one of the cool things about these prayers of David is that they give a voice to the very same human emotions and desires that we have as well. And so part of what we can do with these psalms is they can enable us to pray our own hearts to God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag and tell you that for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Psalm 139. And so I'm going to read a section of Psalm 139 today, but we're only going to be um, looking at little sections of it at length um, over the course of the next three weeks, and then we'll jump into some more uh, prayers of David. So let me read, begin reading Psalm 139, and I'm going to go through verse 18. So just follow along with me, if you will. It'll be up on the screen as well. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm of David, this prayer of David, and not only the the truth that we see in it about who you are and about who David is, and how we relate to you, Father. But I thank you, Father, that we can also at the same time um, see the heart of humanity as we reach out to you and seek to find comfort, um, not in who we are, but in who you are. And so, Father, I pray that that would be our comfort today. I pray that our comfort would be in knowing that you are a good God, that you are our Father, that you love us, that your Son Jesus is our Savior because we needed saving. Father, the Holy Spirit works in us um, to align our hearts and our minds with your heart and your mind because we need to be aligned with you, Father. I pray that, uh, again, as always, that you would be here um, among us, that you would fall upon us. I pray that 
that we wouldn't be able to leave here today, Father, without having had an encounter with you, the living God. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, <clears throat> romantic stories, right? Romantic movies, romantic stories. Um, when you think about sort of a romance novel or a romantic movie, just, you know, sort of where you are for a second, you don't have to shout it out, but think for a moment about some romantic stories. You know, maybe when you think about romantic stories, you think about that book section sort of in Kroger with guys on white horses with shirts unbuttoned down the front of their chest. I do that sometimes for Krista. She loves it. <laughs> By the way, just in case you're wondering, that is a joke. That's not true at all in any possible way. My kids do. They, they appreciate that much more anyway. But anyway, you think about, you know, maybe... You know, movies that have come out over the years, like The Notebook. I have not seen The Notebook, but I've heard from lots of people, so I need to see The Notebook, so I, I need to check it out. When I think about these romance stories, um, I'm going to contrast two today, and then I'm going to follow it up with a question. One uh, romance novel is maybe one that you're not as familiar with. It's called Don Quixote, all right? Maybe you are familiar with it. I talked about this at a, um, a wedding a couple months ago. Um, but Don Quixote is this interesting story. It was written by uh, Miguel de Cervantes, in 1612, so it's a very old sort of love story, and it's about this man who, a Spanish man named Don Quixote, and uh, he falls in love with this woman. Her name is Aldanza, uh, but he names her Dulcinea, which means my sweet one, I think, David Slade, wherever you are, Spanish professor. And what's interesting is, in, throughout the story, um, he's telling people about Dulcinea, and over and over again, he tells people about how wonderful she is and how beautiful she is and how, you know, uh, how she's a princess and all these wonderful things. And, and nobody knows who in the world he's talking about, right? He's like, they were like, his friends are like, who, who are you talking about? And one day he points her out to them. And what's interesting is that she's not a princess at all. She's not a beautiful person at all. In fact, she's either, depending on that adaptation, either a rather homely sort of farm girl or a prostitute, depending again on which adaptation you read. But in her, in his eyes, she was this beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I'm going to read a little quote about how he speaks of Dulcinea. He says this, her name is Dulcinea, her country El Toboso, a village of La Mancha. Her rank must at least be that of a princess, since she is my queen and lady, and her beauty is superhuman. Since all the impossible and fanciful attributes of beauty, which the poets apply to their ladies, are verified in her. For her hairs are gold, her forehead Elysian fields, her eyebrows rainbows, her eyes suns, her cheeks roses, her lips coral, her teeth pearls, her neck alabaster, her bosom marble, her hands ivory, her fairness snow, and what modesty conceals from sight, such I think and imagine as rational reflection can only extol, not compare. In other words, I don't know if you understood what he just said, but he's basically saying the, the sort of whatever the platonic ideal of beauty is, it finds its expression in her, right? And of course, what's interesting in that is that he's blind to the reality of who she is, but he's definitely in love with her. That's, that's one love story. The second love story is slightly less well-known and slightly less critically acclaimed, and it's called Pretty Woman. So I don't know if you ever saw this movie. It came out in 1990, which coincidentally was the year that I graduated from high school, and so it's a little bit old these days. But in it, Richard Gere plays a character named Edwin, and Edwin is this wealthy, wealthy businessman. 
and he is, uh, has to go out um, to Hollywood for about a week to have all these business meetings and do all these things, and he needs to have uh, sort of a date with him. He's not married, and so he actually finds um, this young lady. Her name is, she's played by Julia Roberts, but her name is Vivian, and she's actually a Hollywood escort, and so you know, he hires her and just says, you know, in a professional relationship, if you can just go with me to these parties and these events and these dinners, then um, that would be great. And, and so y- you can imagine sort of uh, the nature of that relationship and the nature of who she is. I mean, not unlike Dulcinea or Aldonza, she's got some scars, right? I mean, she's got some brokenness. Uh, she's got plenty of flaws. Uh, she's got any number of different things that to a lot of people would probably make bits and pieces of her uh, rather unattractive. And initially, their relationship is just a business relationship. It's really just platonic. But in the end, Richard Gere ends up falling in love with Vivian, this character, despite the fact that he sees and knows all of her flaws, right? Two very interesting love stories, Don Quixote on the one hand and Pretty Woman on the other. And my question for you guys this morning is, which is a better picture of the way God loves us? What's a better picture of the way God loves us? Because they're very different. In fact, some people might say that they're mutually exclusive. But let's take a moment. Let's look at Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. I've already read these, and so you've already heard them once. But let's hear them again. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. So we see in this passage that David is writing in this prayer, this psalm to God, is that David actually finds comfort and security in the fact that God knows David completely and that he still loves him, right? That's part of what we see in these first four verses and throughout this psalm. And so let's look at for a moment of the nature of what uh, God knows about David that brings David comfort. The first thing that I think we see in this little section is that David finds comfort in the fact that God knows his actions, right? He's actually assured by that. So I'm going to read verses one, two, and three. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. In other words, what David is saying is, you, you know everything I do, right? Every action, when I sit down, when I stand up, when I come in, when I go out, you, you see everything about me, right? You see all of the things that I do. And so verses 2 and 3, really this entire section, fall under the category, theologically speaking, of what we would call God's omniscience. In other words, omni meaning all, and then science meaning knowledge. And so God has all knowledge, right? In other words, um, God knows everything that has ever been, everything that will be. He knows all. And so David uses the example of God's knowing when he sits and stands, when he comes and when he goes, when he lies down to sleep. But David's knowledge is actually uh, more than God's just omniscience generally. What David is saying is he's saying, you know me entirely, completely. You know all these things about me, and yet you haven't given up on me, right? You know all of my actions, everything about me, and you're still there. You haven't given up on me. We see Jesus modeling this in Scripture. John chapter 4 is this very interesting narrative of Jesus speaking with this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. She has a very checkered history with um, 
several different husbands and some romantic relationships that have gone awry, and that she keeps going back to that particular well. In this story, we find her at a physical well. Jesus really isn't supposed to talk to women in public, at least that's what the, the Pharisees and the law of the day says, and yet he goes right to her, and he begins speaking with her, and here's what he tells her. He says, he meets her, and he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is just quite true. In other words, Jesus peels back his divinity for a moment, and he reveals to this woman, like, you know, I know everything, right? I know everything you've done. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, right? The beautiful story here encapsulates what Psalm 139 is telling us, that God sees everything that we've done, and yet he still loves us, right? He's still with us. That's what David is saying here. And so the question for those of us in this room this morning, is it comforting for you to think about the fact that God knows your actions? Is that comforting to you? (laughs) I mean, just inside your own head, feel free to answer that question, right? Your behavior on the basketball court, the football field, the soccer field, your actions on the internet while you're on the clock. David amazingly finds comfort in remembering and knowing that God knows all of those things about him and still loves him. That's a pretty amazing declaration. In fact, we ended this reading this morning with verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. In other words, you see it all, everything I've ever done, and you didn't leave. You're still here, right? And David amazingly finds comfort in knowing that God knows his actions completely. The second thing we see in this little section of verses is that not only does David take comfort in knowing that God knows his actions, but also David takes comfort in knowing that God knows even his words. Verse 4 says, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. It's back to this omniscience idea. Not only do you know the things that I am saying, right, and have said, you know the things that I will say, right, even before I've uttered them. Let's go back to Jesus. Jesus in relationship with Peter, again, you guys maybe are familiar with Peter, but he was one of sort of the, the leading disciples. And we read the story in Matthew 26 um, of basically Jesus telling the disciples, hey, guess what? When it, when it really all hits the fan and I get arrested, you guys are going to leave me. And, and here's what Peter says, and I'll just begin in reading in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, everybody else's actions might fail you. My actions are not going to fail you. Verse 34, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Not only are you going to disown me in your actions, 
but you're going to disown me with your words, which we know he did. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. My words will always be faithful to you. And all the other disciples said the same. And we know the end of that story. Do you realize that not only does God know all of your actions, past, present, and future, but do you realize that God knows every word that you've ever spoken? Again, just let that sink in for a moment. Think about the words you've spoken, right? While driving, when your boss or teacher asked you about the assignment, when you hit your finger with the hammer, every curse, every bit of gossip, every bit of slander that just felt so good, every lie to protect yourself or gain something that really wasn't yours, every falsehood, every bit of duplicitousness, and every complaint, right? God knows all of those things, and he even knows that you're going to fail again and again and again, not only with your actions, but also with your words, and yet he still loves you, right? He still loves you, will not give up on you. Verses 17 and 18 again, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I'm still with you. I mean, he'd be justified in turning his back on us, right? I mean, after knowing our actions, after knowing our words, like how in the world can we be in relationship with this God who continues to be faithful to us, though he knows the depths of our actions and the depths of our words? But David goes further. He says, not only do I find comfort in the fact that I know that God knows my actions and that I know that he knows my words, but I even find comfort in God in knowing that he knows even my thoughts. Verse 2 says this, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And so again, let's look back to Jesus. Jesus was in relationship with a guy named Nathaniel. We see the story at the very beginning of John chapter 1, and uh what we can, we think, or I think we can sort of figure out from this story is that Nathaniel is praying and Jesus is not there. He's far away. And yet, when Jesus meets Nathaniel, Jesus demonstrates to Nathaniel that I've heard your prayer. I've heard your thoughts. Verse 47 of John chapter 1, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Just pause there for a second. Nothing overtly amazing in Jesus' comment there, but look at how Nathanael responds. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, Philip knew that Jesus had read his mind, that though Nathanael had been praying to God, Jesus heard that prayer. It's one thing to acknowledge that God knows our actions. It's another thing to acknowledge that he knows our words, but to know our thoughts, I mean, come on, that's got to be terrifying. Brian Carroll um, is a professor at um, Barry, and I remember him one time saying, he said, if people could read our minds, we wouldn't have any friends and our marriages would never last, right? And I think he's probably right. And for most of us up to this point, we may have been thinking in terms of this discussion that David's sort of taking with God. Some of us may have been thinking, like, my actions haven't been too bad. You know, like, I mean, yeah, every now and then I've done some things that I shouldn't have done, but, like, I'm nothing compared to my sister, you know. 
I'm nothing compared to my buddies. I'm nothing compared to those people. So, like, if it comes down to sort of the balanced scale of life, like, I'm probably on the good side. You know, or even our words, like, you know, like, I haven't been perfect, but I'm not a sailor, you know what I mean? I'm not a pathological liar. You know, compared to other people I know and comments I've read online, like, you know, I'm nothing compared to those people. My, My words are okay. But when it comes to this section of our thoughts, for most of us, it's got to be a little bit terrifying to know that God knows our very thoughts. Just think for a moment about the fact that God can see through the atmosphere, through the strata, through your head, all the way into your brain and hear everything you've ever thought, right? And yet, David finds comfort in the realization that God knows his actions, his words, every thought that's ever run through his mind, and that God isn't going anywhere because God loves him. This ought to be paradigm shifting for you. This ought to be shocking to you. You ought to be asking the question like, how can that be? How can can a holy and good God still love me, knowing all of those things about me? And the answer is because God made a covenant with David and because God has made a covenant with us as well through his son Jesus. But let's look at David and the covenant God makes with him in 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. With the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Why is David able to know that that God knows his actions and his words and his thoughts, and yet he's still there? And the reason why he has the ability to find comfort in all of those is because God has made a covenant with David, and he said, you will be to me as a son, and I will love you with a steadfast love. I'm not going anywhere. You know, we think about marriages, and we think about relationships. We think about them in terms of a consumer relationship. This is, this is not new information. But what we think about is we think about our needs and our desires, and really what we oftentimes think is that the, the needs and the desires of the consumer outweigh that of the vendor, right? Like, I mean, if all of a sudden Kroger is charging $5 for a watermelon and you can get a watermelon for two bucks at Publix and it's just as good of a watermelon, then sorry, Kroger, I'm going to Publix, right? Right, that's, that's the view of life that's really come to dominate the way we see our relationships. Marriage, for example, would be one of those ways. Um, we have a tendency to think of it as a consumer relationship, right? Like, hey, when that person's not meeting my needs anymore, when it's not good for me anymore, then I'm, I'm out. I'm gonna go find a relationship that is better for me. There's one area where we really don't do that yet, and it's the area of child rearing. We think about our children, and we think, well, there's nothing that my kids could ever do to make me walk away from them because it's a, not a consumer relationship, it's a covenant relationship, right? It's a covenant. A covenant relationship is one in which the good of the relationship or the good of the other individual outweighs the needs or the desires of the other. Again, it's still the way we see child rearing to this day, and it is the way we should view marriage. And there's a reason why God uses those metaphors to talk about his relationship with us. 
He talks about his relationship with us in terms of marriage. He talks about his relationship with us in terms of him being a father and us being children. And the good news is that this is precisely the covenant view of relationship through which God sees you and sees me, right? He sees it not as a consumer relationship, but he sees himself bound not only to you and to me, but bound to his son, Jesus, right? In Genesis chapter 15, we see this really cool story where God makes a covenant, but instead of demanding that Abraham walk through the covenant, God sets up sort of the covenant pieces, and then he walks down the middle of this covenant ceremony by himself, because what God is saying is, you're not going to be able to keep that covenant, right? Only I can. And so I'll agree with myself to save you. Despite your actions, despite your words, despite even your thoughts. So at the beginning of the sermon today, I contrasted Don Quixote with Pretty Woman, and I asked which of those stories better represents God's love towards us. And I'm hoping you probably realized this and picked up on it already. It actually is a little bit of a trick question, because I think the answer is actually both. But here in Psalm 139, we see the pretty woman version of God's love on display, right? He sees our flaws. He knows our faults. He has heard every word that we have spoken and will speak. He has seen every action that we will engage in, and he knows every thought that we've ever had, and he still loves us, and he says, I'm not going anywhere. Great quote from The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. I've read it before. I'll read it again. (laughs) But he says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. We don't have to pretend anymore. Humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us which is exactly why David can find comfort in knowing that God knows everything about him. And it's why David can write, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And that's true for you and for me as well. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you that like a father, you do see our sin, you do see our iniquity. Um, you will discipline us, um, not because you're angry uh, or not because you desire to punish us, rather, but you discipline us, Father, um, so that we will be um, holy, so that we will flourish um, as the human beings that you created us to be. And yet, Father, um, you are able to look at our sin and our flaws and our faults and our rebellion. Father, you know every shameful thing that we've done or said or thought, and you refuse to go because like a good father, um, you love us, and you will stay faithful to us, and you will not love us because, you are, because we are beautiful, but rather you'll make us beautiful because you love us. And so, Father, our hope is in you as our good father and in your son Jesus as our savior today. In his name we pray, amen.